We've been having a great summer. We're in a series called Passages, and we're allowing all sorts of people within our community to share from specific texts in the Bible that have made a difference in their world and their following of Jesus. Where we're giddy tonight because most of you know Sean, um, but those of you who don't or knew, he's been a part of the Sunset family for a while, but he's the least visible simply because he directs the youth and kids. So most of the time when we have kids outside of this gathering, Sean and a team are leading and caring for them. But we're thrilled for him uh, to be a part of the teaching team tonight. Sean, you're looking very, very, yeah. I think I got a slightly better man bun, personally. <laughs> anyway, Sean, here we Thanks, Jose. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. If you do have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are going to be... Uh, Jose gave me permission to uh, go for like four hours and do the whole book. So I hope you, you know, buckle in. Uh, you think I'm kidding? I'm serious. No, but, um, but really, we're just going to be going to uh, Ephesians 4.17. We're going to look at 4.17 through uh, 24. And guys, first, before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much. And that, those applause and cheers, that means so much to me. You can't, you can't even imagine. Um, I, I feel so loved. It's, it's humbling to stand uh, in the, the pulpit, so to speak, um, of my, my home church in my hometown in front of people who went to high school with me and my parents and um, my brothers and sisters. It's, it's a... It's a humbling uh, experience, and I, I don't take it lightly, and I'm super thankful uh, for you guys that I get to share that experience with you guys. It's, uh, it's a, an amazing thing. Um, so we, we are, we are going to get into Ephesians uh, 4.17, and I want to key in on that because it's such a crucial passage um, in the book. But for, before we get into um, those verses, I want to kind of um, give us a little bit of background, a little bit of framework for the book. Um, so you can kind of think of the book, um, really th- picture a door. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians um, are the front half of the door. And the second three chapters of the book are the back half of the door. And it kind of swings on these hinges. And that's going to be the verses that we're going to look at is that, that hinge moment in the book. Um, but, but before we get into that, we've got to kind of look at the first half of the book. The first half of the book is all about what God has done. Um, through Jesus, through the cross, what he's done, and who we are because of it. What, 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 what the, the ground changes for, for us. Um, he's, he's adopted us. He's made us co-heirs. Um, he's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us. He, he has also brought us in to team up with him, really, and go out on this mission that he has started to rescue the world, to save us from ourselves. And really to bring us into a multi-ethnic, multicultural family that is all one in Christ. That's the first half of the book, really in a nutshell. The second half of the book, if you, if you look at the back side of the door, is all do's and don'ts. It's this is what it looks like to, to live like this, to, to be a follower of Jesus. And, and they seem kind of stark. They seem kind of very um, contrast. But let's, let's look at the, the hinge in between. This is so key to understanding um, the book of Ephesians, or really anything that Paul has written. He kind of writes everything this way. Look at Ephesians uh, 4, verse 1, actually. He says, A prisoner of the Lord, 
then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So he's kind of switching. He's changing gears. The hinge has swung and he's going over to the backside of the door. He's swinging from, this is what God has done. This is who you are now. And then now live like it. He's switching over to the back half of the door. So we want to kind of investigate this, this, uh, this hinge a little bit more tonight. Um, the, the back half of the door can be really uh, challenging if we, don't, if we don't see it the way that Paul uh, it intends for us to see it. If you see it separate from what God has done and our new identity in him, um, we, can, we can get really discouraged. We can get really discouraged because we see it as this big list of do's and don'ts, and they're hard. Honestly, if you look at some of the things he says, he gets into anger. He gets into things about your marriage. He gets into things about your money and how you spend your money. He gets into how you talk, how you think about other people. He gets into all, how you relate to your coworker, what your work ethic is. He gets into the nitty gritty, and it can be really hard. It can be really hard to receive if we don't see it through the lens that, that, that Paul intends us to see it. We can just look at it and go, man, this is really tough. I'm just going to I'm going to flip back to the book of John because he's just talking about love and stuff. That'll be a lot easier, right? We do that sometimes. We, we get, into, we get in, in our morning devotions, we open up the Bible and we read a tough passage. And like, I can't, I can't handle this today. We can, guys, we can become discouraged um, in, in our walk if we don't keep this framework um, that, that Paul is intending for us. Uh, another thing that can happen if we don't keep this in mind, if we don't keep things in perspective of our identity in him and what he's done, um, we, can, we can become legalistic. That's the other side of the coin. You can either get discouraged and go, oh, I can't do this, and we, we give up. Or the flip side is that we can, we can get really legalistic and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, well, I'm just going to do it in my own strength. And we can just, I'm just going to stick to these rules. Um, and, and it's separate from the life of God. And we start to get off track. And we start to make up our own rules and add on. Does that sound familiar at all? It, it sounds like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. It's what they did. And Jesus said repeatedly, sat with tears in his eyes, you're, you're missing it. You're off, you're off track. Right? So we don't want to do either of these things. We don't want to be discouraged. We don't want to walk away from the scriptures going, man, I can't live up to this. I can't do this. And we also don't want to be like, oh yeah, I got this. This is all me. Right? We don't, we don't want to look at it either way because both of those are wrong. I don't think that's uh, what Paul is trying to say. Because both of those things really deal with our actions. It's surface only. We think what Paul is writing is he wants our actions to be in line with God. And that's true in a way. But I think that Paul is more con- he's less concerned with our actions, um, but more concerned with our heart. He's less concerned with the, with, with the surface activity. The actions are the surface activity, but, but that, all of that comes from the things uh, that are deep, uh, deep, deep below that. Um, what, what generates our, our actions is these deep um, issues that really stem from our identity, who, who we are. Um, and that's what Paul's going after here. He's going after... In, in this section that we're about to dig into is what are the core motivations and incentives of your heart? What's driving you to do what you do, to, to, to be what you are, to say what you say, to live the way that you live? 
What's the core of that? What's driving your actions? That's what he's really getting into here. Uh, and all this is background. So with all of that said, uh, let's, let's pray. Um, Jesus, uh, like we sang just a minute ago, uh, you, you use the humble and you use the weak. Uh, Lord, so please, uh, please use me to teach your scriptures um, adequately, um, simply, um, correctly. God, tonight, we just thank you that we have a place to worship you, that we have a place to seek your face, to study your word. Um, God, we just, again, like Brandon asked, we just ask that you would show up, that you'd be here, that you'd speak to each one of us through your spirit, through your scriptures. Um, God, that we would be stirred to response to all that you've done for us. Jesus, we just pray these things in your sweet name. Everyone said? Amen. All right, so let's look at uh, Ephesians 4, verse 17. And Paul writes, he says, uh, So I tell you this and insist on it, that in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and also to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new by the, in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." It's great, great stuff. Well, let's go back up to uh, verse 17, and let's uh, start to unpack this. He says in verse 17, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, is that a term, like the word Gentile, I'm, I want to focus in on this. Is that a word that we use in casual conversation this last week at all? Has anybody used that word this last week in regular? No, it's not a, it's not a standard word uh, that we use today. It's actually a term that was that was that came out of Jewish culture. Um, really, is a term for everyone else that wasn't a Jew, that wasn't a part of God's people. And really, they were these people that follow other gods, the Gentiles, right? Uh, what's also interesting about this, he's he's saying, I insist you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now think about it. Who is he talking to? Who is this letter to? I'm hearing it a little, I'm hearing it murmured. Yeah, it's the Gentiles, right? Go ahead and flip back a page to uh, Ephesians 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. All right, now go back a few, a few paragraphs more to uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and then he goes off into, into another amazing passage. But here's, here's what's happening. Paul is saying, hey, you Gentiles, don't live like Gentiles anymore. You see what he's doing there? It's, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like saying to us today, hey, you, uh, you Americans, don't live like the Americans do anymore. And we're kind of like, well, I'm an American and I live in America. But see, he's making, he's making a deeper statement. 
He's saying in this, in this, this hinge passage in the book of Ephesians, he's trying to get us to think about our identity. He's, he's saying because of, because of what God has done, because of who you are now, because you are adopted into his family, because you are heirs, you're, you're no longer really a Gentile. You're no longer really first and foremost an American. You're, you're, something, you're something different. You're something different now because of, because of what God has done for you and in you. There's a fundamental change that's happening. Do you guys see that? That's kind of interesting. Don't, you, you Gentiles don't live as the Gentiles anymore. And he, he, he says that we're, really, we're, we're becoming something else. And he gets into that in the next few verses. He, he calls it the new humanity. I love that. It's, it's amazing what he's going after here. Now, I want, I want to tackle this with a, with a story, because I feel word pictures and stories just really grab me and, and, and explain things way better than just explaining it. Um, so uh, let me tell you guys a story. So there's a, a teacher. Her name is Crystal Jones. Um, she uh, taught for Teach for America in uh, the inner city in, in Atlanta in a low-income area. She hadn't finished her teaching degree. She was just doing this. Um, as an off year from school, she wanted to get some teaching experience, and so she got plugged into um, this school that didn't have a kindergarten, is in a, in a low-income area, not a super good situation, great place to learn to be a teacher. So she gets, she gets into this classroom, and uh, this is what she writes about the first couple of days. Uh, she says, at the beginning of the year, I had two or three students that could recognize kindergarten sight words. And this is, a, this is a first grade classroom. I don't know if I said that or not. This, this is a first grade classroom. At the beginning of the year, I had two or three students that could recognize kindergarten sight words. I also had some that didn't even know how to hold a pencil or even a book the right way up. The ones that had never been to school, their behavior was not where it needed to be to be in the classroom for that long of a period of time. I had students who didn't know their alphabet or their numbers. They were, they were on all different levels, and no one was where they needed to be for the first grade. What would you do? Pretty, pretty daunting. How many of you guys are teachers in the room? I'm just curious. How many of you guys are teachers? It's, it's interesting. She's a first-time teacher. This is her first classroom. This is the hand that she's been dealt. And she's thinking about it in her first week there. What do I do? What, how do I handle this? They're all over the place. How do, I, how do I do this? And so she started watching them on the playground. And she noticed that these first graders, they would watch very keenly. Whenever they were around third graders or around that age, a couple years older than them, they would watch them. And they'd start to mimic them. Whatever they thought was interesting, those kids, they'd follow along and they'd do... How many of you guys have older siblings? You know exactly how this works. Or younger siblings, right? You know exactly how it works. You see, you're like fascinated by the by someone who's just a couple years older. They're like, oh, they just, they're just a little, little more advanced, and they're fascinated. She's like, okay, I've got a plan. So one day she went to her classroom, and she said, all right, guys, here's the deal. You are all going to become third graders by the end of this year, like it or not. You're going to become third graders. And some of the kids are like, all right, I, I like this. I like this plan. This is, this is good. See, you got my attention. The kids, are, the kids are liking this. They're fascinated. She says, you are all going to become third graders by the end of the year. Like it or not, that's what's going to happen. We're going to get there. And she started to build her whole curriculum and the way that she communi- communicated to these kids and the way that they communicated to, e- to each other 
through that goal, through that goal of becoming a third grader. Um, she, th- this is brilliant. I love this. She had every student uh, speak to each other as scholar. They had to call every other student in the classroom scholar and then their last name. I lo- isn't that great? I love that. Scholar Hayworth, could you come over here, please? Right? It's, it's, it's wonderful. And then she would refer to them whenever they had a guest speaker come into the room. She said, this is my budding class of, of third graders. Here, they're all, they're all very scholarly. Another, another thing that I, I love, this is so great. She, at the beginning of every class and at the end of every class, um, she had them recite um, the definition of a scholar or her, her definition of a scholar. Um, they would say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. And then they'd go into their class and they'd do their work. They'd call each other scholar. And she'd say, you are my budding third graders. And then at the end of the day, they would say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. And then they'd go home. And she knew by, by November, uh, just a couple months into, this, into the school year, she knew she had them hooked. Because these kids would like melt down in front of their parents if they couldn't make a day of school. They'd be like, well, what's going to happen? Like, I can't go to the dentist. They're, I might not become a third grader. You know, they're, they're just like distraught not to be in class. She knew she had them because they were convinced. They were bought in. And it, and it, and it worked. By, by March the next year, every single one of those students passed first grade reading comprehension. Isn't that amazing? Some of these kids were learning their ABCs. They were learning how to hold a pencil. And they're, by March, they're, they're reading. It's amazing. I don't think that's by accident. See, you, you see the parallel here, guys? See, she, she created a community that fostered this new identity that she was giving them into fruition. She made a decision about them. She didn't reckon on their past circumstances. She didn't base it on their, their identity or their, their home or how many parents they had or their skill level. It was um, what she was saying about them. You're going to become third graders, like it or not. Do you see the parallel here? What Paul is saying here to these Gentiles, don't live as the Gentiles do. He's saying, you're going to become third graders. You're scholars and you live to learn and you're, you're good at it. Why? Not, not because of your past, not because of who you are in the past, not because of what you've done, but because of who God has decided you will become. Does that make sense? Isn't that, isn't that, I just love that. It takes so much pressure off. Like I was talking about that discouragement or that, that legalism. There's so much freedom in, in what God has done for us. Anyway, let's, I'm getting off, getting off my notes. Uh, verse, verse 18, let's keep reading. They are darkened in their understanding. He's talking about this living as the Gentiles do. He's saying they are darkened in their understanding and separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. There's a couple things I want to pull out here. This is our... Our former, we were all walking in this at one point, our former way of life that God is calling us out of. And this is the thing that it's marked by. Look at what he says. He says there, it's due to the hardening of their hearts. And because of this hardening of their hearts, they've lost all sensitivity. They've lost all sensitivity uh, to, God's, to God's will in your life. 
And I, I love this picture. It, it resonates home with me. How many of you guys play guitar or an instrument with strings? Okay, how many of you guys have had calluses on your fingers, right? Those painful things that you wish you didn't have to go through, right? It's painful learning how to play the guitar. But after a while, here's the thing, is it builds up and eventually you can, you can play without pain because these, your body has reacted to it in a way that, that numbs all sensation there. And this is, the, this is the analogy that I've used for years for this because this, this uh, point pops up in, in a lot of different places in Scripture. But more recently, um, I've been training for uh, a super long, super long run. I'm actually going to be um, trying to run hike the whole Oregon section of the Pacific Crest Trail next week. And so this whole year I've been training um, leading up to that. And it's been lots and lots and lots and lots of running. Um, week in, week out. And it's just, it's just played crazy with my feet. And it's been interesting because um, you, get, you get a blister or something. How many of you guys don't like talking about feet? Anybody? I'm sorry. I'd, I'm sorry, but not sorry. So I get, I'm getting these blisters and then they heal up and they harden. And, and, and I'm getting these, like, from running 100 miles in a week, you, you, your feet just bruise. And then they heal back and they, they start to figure out how to adapt so that that pain doesn't happen anymore. And the skin gets harder. The, the all, it, it just reacts against it. It's because it's unhealthy for those feet, really. It's, uh, it's unhealthy for it. And our body reacts against it. And it's the same thing with our souls, guys. When we go off in, against God's will, when we wander into sin, and we hurt our souls... Our soul reacts to that and it builds up a callus against that. And we can go further and further, just as I've gone with with running or you have with guitar or whatever. You experience this this growing, uh, or I shouldn't say growing, but a lessening of sensation. You lose all feeling. And as we walk away from God's will for our lives, the same thing happens. We get hurt and our body builds against it. We get hurt and our body builds against it until we just can't, we can't feel God's pull on our heart at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what he's saying here. When you, the former way, the life that we've been called out of, we go that direction. And we, walk, we, we, can't, even, we can't even tell what, what God is trying to speak to us because we're so hardened against it. Let's keep, uh, let's keep reading in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life that you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with his truth. That's not, that's not the life that God has called us into. It's what he's calling us out of. And how have we, how have we learned Christ, guys? What we've learned, I mean, if you look at the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's, we're dead in our, in our sins. We're, we're lost. That We're in that place where our hearts are hardened against and we can't even... We can't even tell what God's will is for us. We're so distant from it. But God, but God steps into the equation. And yes, we're, we're guilty before him. We're, 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 we're sinful. And we have to recognize that before him. And that's, what, that's how we learn Christ is, oh man, I am so messed up and so horrible. But God is so good, so great, so love. His love for us is so deep that he would put that guilt on his son for us 
and invite us into new life and invite us into his family and invite us into something that is greater than we could ever imagine. That's what we learn. That's learning Christ in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's that we are so, so broken, but God is so good and inviting us into new life. That's the truth that he is talking about here, that you are taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And this is great. In these verses right here, there's, um, there's three, uh, three imperatives here. Um, one thing that I didn't mention earlier about the book of Ephesians is that it moves from, from uh, indicatives, these things that are true about us, to imperatives, these things that we should do, these commands. Uh, and there's three of these imperatives right here. He says, you were taught with your, in regard to your former way of life to put off, that's the first one, your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind, that's the second one, and to put on the new self that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now let's go back up and look at this first one, to put off the old self, or the, the, the Greek there is, is really a disrobe. To, to, to like take off a jacket. Now, immediately, every, every time I see this, I think of Mr. Rogers. Right? I mean, this is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And he waltzes in, right? And takes off his cardigan and puts it in the closet and puts on the other. I, I always wondered, I always wondered as a child, why did he do that? Why didn't he just wear the same one? I never understood. I never understood. But that's, that's what I think of, the taking off, and the putting on in this chat, it's just so seamless, Mr. Rogers. And the second thing that I think is easier said than done, Paul. It's not as easy as Mr. Rogers. This is tough, right? Anybody else agree with me? You read this and you're like, it's not that simple, Paul. And that's, that's true. That's true. Well, let's keep looking at this. Um, the next thing right there, put off, put off or disrobe your old self. Does anybody have a different word than self in this, in this verse right here? Anybody have anything else? Go ahead and shout it out. What's that? Old man. man. Yeah, that's a little bit closer. That's a little bit closer, I think. Um, The Greek word there is anthropos. Does that sound sound familiar? Do we get any English words from that? Anthropos. It's kind of like anthropology. That's that's a word we get from that. When I I hear anthropology, I think of two things. Uh, Yeah, I think of the store that some of you ladies do cartwheels over. Right? And then I think of the class in college that some of you guys hated, and some of you guys, it's a polarizing class. Either you loved it or you hated it. Think of those two things. But really, a way that you could read this is to disrobe or take off, put off the old humanity. It's not just man, it's, it's, hum, it's humanity. Take off the old way of living, the old humanity which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. It's being corrupted by these deceitful desires. This is a key, I think this is a key couple verses to understanding this. And, and Paul's kind of looking at identity from another, another angle. Because all of us have desires, right? We have desires in life. And no one would really think they have bad desires. We all have good desires, right? We, wanna, we want to have meaningful work. We want to have a spouse. We want to have kids. We want to have a legacy, we want to do something great. Is, does anybody disagree with that? You're like, no, that doesn't sound good. No, right? Every one of us, that's, that's a desire that we have. All, and every, every one of us are different. We have different desires. We don't all want to be firemen or we don't all want to be 
pilots, whatever, we, we all have different passions, different desires, different callings, different things in our life. But these desires can be tricky in our old humanity, in our flesh. They can be tricky. They can deceive us and, and kind of become our identity in a way. I mean, maybe, maybe you're single and the fact that you are single and not dating or not married is consuming you. It's all you think about. It keeps you up at night. And it's slowly, without you even realizing it, is becoming your identity. It's the way you think about yourself. I am single. Or another way, I am not married. It becomes who you are in a way. Or maybe, maybe you're stuck in a job that is frustrating and it's not, it's not what you envisioned life would be. And you're going, man, I'm like, I'm not fill in the blank. And that's starting to become how you think of yourself. I'm not this thing. Or I am this. And it's taken, it's, it's become something, these desires, these good things in our life have taken over the place that only Jesus should be. The place that only who he says you are should be. Does that make sense? How these deceitful desires, these things that are they're corrupting us, they're pulling us away from God, deceiving us. Um, it's, it's amazing how these things that we pursue, or things, even good things, can pull us away from God. I was reading a book um, the other day um, by a climber. I'm really into climbing, really into outdoor things. If you know me at all, that's one of my, one of my passions. Uh, and I was reading this book about this climber. His name's Michael House. He actually lives in Bend. He's one of the greatest climbers of our generation. And he's trying to, to alpine climb, which is basically the hardest way you can do it. On Everest and stuff, they've got ropes and Sherpas that carry all your stuff. Alpine climbing is almost the exact opposite. You carry all your own stuff. You're self-supported. You don't have a base camp. You probably don't even carry a tent. It's the opposite version. That's probably way too much information. But this guy is super cool in the, in the climbing world. But here's, here's the thing. He was writing this in the introduction to this book I was reading. He was talking about this climb that he did uh, in, in Nepal. It was one of the highest peaks. It was the ninth highest peak in the world, 26,000 feet. And he had devoted three years of his life to getting to the base camp of this mountain. His, he had given up his marriage for it. His wife said, it's the mountain or it's me. And he chose the mountain. And it ruined his marriage. And he continued to push after this goal that he had, this desire. Um, he had tried climbing with a couple different partners. The climbs didn't work out. The last time he, he uh, tried it, his partner turned around about 900 feet from the summit and said, it's too dangerous. The weather's probably going to get bad. I'm not going to do this. And he said, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't care. I'm going to go. And this has been the biggest, this has been the defining desire, the defining goal of his life. And he finally makes it to the top on his own. The first person to ever climb this mountain. First person to climb this route. He gets up there and he said, it all dissolved. And all I saw were more mountains that I wanted to climb. It was brutal. This guy's not a believer. Um, and that's, he, he's super glum in his writing because he. He's realizing what, what Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes. All is vanity aside from God. And he's chasing this desire and he's seeing, man, all I see is more mountains that I want to climb. There's no satisfaction here. 
And that's these desires. They can, they can lead us away, change our identity, wreck our lives, pull us away from God. That's why he's saying, don't walk as the Gentiles. Don't walk in the futility of your mind. Don't be callous to God. Don't, um, don't be corrupted in these deceitful desires. But, um, he says this, be made new in the attitude of your mind. Be made new in the attitude of your mind. See, when the gospel comes in to our lives, it, it's an amazing, fresh start. We can shake everything up and start from ground zero because what the, when, when we allow God to come in, we, we see who, who we are. We see ourselves for who we really are, who God has made us to be. And we can build from there. And we also see who other people are in relationship to us and how God has called us to treat them and how we're to interact with the rest of the world, who we are in the scheme of things. When we allow God to renew our mind and him to declare our identity, everything becomes clear. When, when God renews our mind, that, that is the place that we want to be. Transformed in the attitude of our mind. And to put on the new self or the new humanity. See, uh, Jesus, what Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross is so phenomenal, guys, in, in paving the way for us and showing us. He's the perfect man. He lived the perfect life. He had perfect relationship with the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And he lived in perfect harmony with him. And then he passes on that, that job to all of us, invites us into that mission, that new humanity. And guys, looking forward, like, like you look at Revelation 21 and 22, you look at the passages that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, you look at where we're heading, guys, as, a, as a, the community of God. You look at where we're heading, you're like, man, this new humanity is so exciting, and it's everything that we've longed for. It's amazing. I can't, I can't fully describe all that is packed into that. This new life that God is calling us into. Take off the old. Give up this life that does not satisfy. He's saying, be renewed. See things afresh. Let God shake things up and start from ground zero. And let's walk into the new humanity, the way that God intended things to be from the beginning. See, in Jesus... Jesus, Jesus has become the version of me that I can never become. He paved the way. Jesus is the perfect man and the prototype for the new humanity. What's true of him is now true of me. It doesn't mean I am Jesus. He's the perfect son of God. But it does mean that just as Jesus is right with the Father, so am I. So are you. Just as he's full of the Spirit, so am I. Because apart from God, I perpetually fail even my own, my own standard of good and right. Right? Anybody else? I can't even meet my own standard. But through Jesus, I can, I can walk in this new humanity today, guys. Not just new heavens, new earth. Not, not just when tears are wiped away. Not just when he fixes all things and makes it all right. But today, Jesus said, I've come that you may have a life and have it to the full. And he was talking about now, guys. Not just later. He's talking about now. 
And we're invited into that. See, really what what Paul's saying, going back to earlier, he's saying that we're all going to become third graders. He's saying that we're scholars, that we live to learn and that we're good at it. And that Jesus is inviting us into that life with him. He's inviting us into that. So to wrap all this up, all these thoughts, um, let me ask this question. What is the source of your identity? Where is it coming from? Maybe this is, maybe this is speaking to you. And for, we're all different ages, different, different walks of life, different careers, um, whatever. So maybe this is hitting you in a different, different place. Is it in your background? Is your identity wrapped up in, oh, well, I grew up in the church and I've never done anything majorly wrong. And I've always followed the rules. And you've gotten caught up in that do's and don'ts game that's separate from really what God has for your life. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of that and you didn't grow up in the church and maybe you're still like right now, you, this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. And you're, I, you're, I, you're looking at this and going, I could never be all these things. Maybe your identity's wrapped up in that. It's a, I'm not fill in the blank. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe you're stuck on the fact that you're single. Maybe you're Maybe, maybe your marriage isn't the way that you thought it was going to be. And you're stuck in that. And that's consuming your identity. Maybe, maybe your identity's in the fact that you want children, but you can't, you can't have them. Maybe, maybe, it's in, maybe it's just you have children and you're consumed by living vicariously through them. Where's your, what's, where's your identity at? Maybe it's in what you've accomplished. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your career, your status, your bank account. What what is defining you in your own eyes? Maybe one of these things is, is hitting you where you're at. Maybe it's maybe what's keeping you from God is your sexual orientation. Maybe it's I don't know, the list goes on. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in that. God has so much more. God has so much more than that. And we know because we've gone through that cycle of being disappointed in that identity and that failure. God is calling us to something so much greater than that. The last thing, last thing I want to say is bringing it back to something that was said earlier is learn Christ. Relearn the gospel. I don't care if you're 78 and you've been walking with Jesus your whole life or if you're, you know, a 16-year-old in here and this is your first time sitting in the main gathering. Wherever you're at, maybe, whatever. Wherever you're coming from, relearn. Relearn what Jesus has done for you. Look back at those first three chapters of Ephesians that you've been adopted in, that you're a co-heir, that you are loved that you now can live the way that Jesus did. He's inviting you into that that family. Relearn. Since we are in Jesus, now we can live like Jesus. The best summary of the book of Ephesians, so I can summarize it super briefly, is Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Guys, this is learning Christ right here. 
For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. By the way, we've been memorizing this in the kids area. If you ask your kids, hey, what have you been learning? We've been memorizing these verses. It's amazing. This last month. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, or the Greek here is poema, his poem, his artwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. This is what I'm trying to say in a nutshell, guys. We can't lose track of who we are. If we detach ourselves from our identity in Christ, we're missing it. We're missing it. That's what it is all about. I am who God says I am. I'm part of this new humanity. I am becoming a third grader and I am a scholar who lives to learn and I'm good at it.